Genesis chapter 8. Sola gratia, which is Latin for grace alone. The ironic thing is that we humans have to be told that the only way that we can stand in the presence of a holy and righteous God is through grace alone. And not only do we have to be told this, we have to be retold this and then convinced of it. And still, most people don't believe that this is the case. God must love us. I mean, look at us. Look at all that we can do. How pretty we are. How strong we are. How funny we are. Look at how lucky we are. How much money we can make. How nice our cars are. How nice our house is. But you see, God does love us. And he does give these things to us. But that's not how we understand that God must love us. We think that we did this. We think that we are this. We are human. And we can approach God on our terms. Give him what, he, what we think that he deserves. After all, this is my life. This is my time. And this is my stuff. And this is the reality of most humans. And I'm not meaning those atheists or agnostic. This is how most humans who claim to be Christian think, act, and even live. And God knows this. He told us of this reality in Luke chapter 17, verses 26 through 30. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when, the, when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And these are those days. And most people who claim Christ as their Savior live without any thought towards the future. <clears throat> they invest in the here and the now and not in the hereafter. Confident that they are in, that the grace of God has been bestowed on them simply because they believe. Whatever that means. Before we begin with verse 1, I want to ensure that we are all on the same page as to the why of the flood. And here, here's an aside, a freebie. Just in case you were ever wondering where the greatest population centers of people and animal were in the time of Noah, all you have to do is find out where the oil reserves are located at now. It isn't by chance that what you burn in your car is called the fossil fuel. And God, God was just in condemning the people who lived during the time of Noah. Not because they were evil, but they were that. We're told in chapter 6, verse 5, Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of a thought of his heart was only evil continually. And that is not why God was destroying all humans, save eight, though. 
He is just in condemning man because we are told in chapter 3 that Adam was hiding from God in the garden. There we read, when God confronted Adam, Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? You see, we, we humans don't understand, not really anyway, that God should have justly punished Adam and Eve at that moment. He not only could have, not only had every justifiable right to, but in reality, he was wrong in not punishing them at that moment. His justice demanded and required this to happen. We are told of God. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you, Psalm 5.4. We are told, for the light Lord is righteous. He loves justice, Psalm 11.7. We are told in Deuteronomy 32.4, He is the rock. His works are perfect. All His ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is He. You see, because of these verses, we're faced with a conundrum. In him not justly condemning them the moment that they sinned. And this, this conundrum, should be the thing that we struggle to understand concerning God, not what we call free will and the sovereignty of God. We should struggle with how can God be just, hate the wicked, be a God that evil cannot dwell with, and at the same time, not annihilate Adam and Eve and all those that live for more than 1,600 years. You see, this is the correct thing to think about concerning God. And this, this conundrum should be the thing that humans struggle with. And this is why at the beginning of the letter to the saints in Rome, Paul brings up this very problem. He asks and answers the question of God putting up with Adam and all that have lived since him. In Romans 3, Paul speaks of all humanity since Adam, saying that none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp, of asp is under their lip. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. Verses 11 through 17. And those are all quotations of verses from the Old Testament. And then in verse 18, Paul gives us the full description of all men. He says there, there is no fear of God before their eyes. We all hated God from Adam forward, and we all deserved the wrath of God, and we were all under that wrath, and God was not acting in justice when he did not instantly pronounce and execute that wrath on us. And Paul knew that God was not acting in his righteousness, that his righteous justice was not executed as it should have been, and it had not been for a reason. And then he tells us that reason. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through, Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
Did you hear the explanation given as to why God did not annihilate Adam? Why he put up with humanity for all those years? His righteousness now has been manifested. And, if it, and it was manifested to a people who have been justified by grace in Christ Jesus. And that word, justified, is a legal term. And it can be best explained to mean just as if I had never sinned. And this all happened in Christ, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul says, that he, God, was not acting in justice when he did not end the life of Adam and Eve the moment they sinned. And in fact, since they had been created in the image of God, since they were created with an eternal soul, his justice required and demanded that they suffer an eternal punishment for their treason against this great eternal and holy God. But he didn't end their lives. He didn't cast them into the hell that he had already created for Satan and his minions. He allowed them to live. He allowed them to thrive, provided for them, protected them, made himself known to them through his creation. He still communed with them and put up with them and their spawn for 1,600 years. And then he told Noah, build an ark. And as we're told at the end of chapter 7, he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals, creeping things, and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those that were in the ark, and then the waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days. And that flood, that flood was right. This was a display of the mercy of God towards his creation as, re as he removed the cancer from his creation. However, though, <clears throat> this was not the righteous judgment that is demanded because he is holy. In fact, even though God destroyed all that had the breath of life in them at that time, he still did not act justly in that moment. All of God's creation was tainted with sin, all of it. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, Genesis 6, 5. But don't be fooled. Don't be misled and don't misthink concerning God in the flood. See, God didn't react to that revelation that we're told of in Genesis 6-5. He didn't cause a flood because of what he saw in man. He acted in his perfect timing. The flood, the ark, the righteousness of Noah, all these were pre-planned preordained and prepared to point to the righteousness that is God. And this is why getting Genesis 1-1 is so important because in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, he specifically created them with vast amounts of water waiting for an appointed day when the big countdown clock on the wall ran to zero. And on that day, he commanded the water and it obeyed. And this was all done to reveal the reality of the God that created all things. The God whose justice will be done. But at the same time, His holy grace was being demonstrated. 
You see, back in Genesis 6, after the telling of God seeing the truth of the reality of all humanity, all humanity, he told Noah to build an ark because he was going to destroy everything that had the breath of life within it. And then in a wave of grace, he told Noah, verses 18 through 20, I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And Noah did all that God commanded him, thereby saving his life, the lives of his family members and the life of all animals that God brought to the ark. And then God said, let there be flood. And there was flood. And God saw that the flood was very good. Verse 1, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. The first two words of verse 1 are the sweetest, most important words given us in the Bible. But God. The very thoughts of every human were evil because they were evil. But God. Every human thing should have been wiped off the face of the earth. But God. And we are told that this God, he remembered Noah. And this is the grace of God. It was his grace that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, Genesis 6-8. It was the grace of God in him telling Noah that he was going to destroy all life, to build the ark, that he would even make his covenant with him, Genesis 6-13-18. And it was his grace to tell Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation, Genesis 7-1. And the reason that all of this is grace is not because it was the means that saved Noah and his family. It's all grace because Noah was just as much a sinner, just as evil in his heart as those that were on the outside of the ark. He wasn't a good man. He wasn't a godly man not outside of God setting his grace on him and making him a godly man. And this is the grace of God in the life of Noah. But God remembered Noah. And we shouldn't think that God had set the flood in place and lost track of time afterwards while he was doing laundry or watching TV or something. That's a human understanding of remembering. God's remembering is different than ours. His remembering is always linked with his attributes. We are told of him remembering twice more in the book of Genesis. Genesis 19, verse 29. So it was then that God destroyed the cities of the valley, but God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst to overthrow them. He overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. And then again in Genesis 30, verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. And then in Exodus 6-5, we're told of the common thread that links all the remembrances of God. There we read, Moreover, I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. That word, covenant, that is the thread that will always link the use of the word remember to the righteousness of God, to the attributes of God. Again, Exodus 2.24, And God heard their groanings, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God, when he brings a people into covenant with himself, 
He expects that they are going to act accordingly as told to us in Exodus 28. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And the remembering of verse 1 from today is because of that covenant promise back in chapter 6 when God told Noah, I will establish my covenant with you. And because of the covenant that God made with Noah back in chapter 6, he remembered Noah here in chapter 8. And the remembering of God is the action of God as told to us in verse 2. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heaven were closed and the rain of heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated and in the seventh month and the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The interesting thing is that God created all there is in six days. Go outside at night and look at the vastness of the universe that was created on day one. Or go outside and look at the vast number of things that are underneath your feet as you just walk on this earth. Every speck of dust, every grain of sand, they were all created within the first four days of the creation week. But when God destroyed all that had life within them, he took his time. He appointed 40 days for the destruction of all things that had the breath of life within them. And then when he remembered Noah and all those that were in the ark, he took his time in having the waters recede. It rained for a month and a half. And then for five months, the waters receded. And then the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen, verse 5. And if you've ever been on a cruise ship, you know just how small a ship, even a huge ocean-going liner, can get within just seven days. And the ark was just half the size of the largest cruise ships that we have these days. And there was no staterooms. There were no late-night dining seatings. And there was no pool deck on the ark. The provision of God to Noah and his family in the ark that had to have been seen, at least at first, to be a great blessing to them, a great grace towards them, at least at first. For the first couple of months when the rains fell and the water swelled, I'm sure that it was seen as a blessing. But we need to remember that Noah was never told what was going to happen once the ark was built other than God was going to destroy all that had the breath of life with them. He was not told that he would ever see land ever again, or that his life would not forevermore be on that ark. He wasn't given the specifics of the salvation that God promised to him. He was just told that he would be saved. And the message of the ark is the message of the Bible. It is the divine plan of God being worked out in the created realm and is revealed to the created in stages. Rarely in the Bible does God give humans the end game, the full plan. I mean, the final covenant that was hinted at was promised in veiled truth until the fullness of time. And this is the grace of God for his people as he teaches them to walk in faith. So when the water began to recede and the ark hit ground and stopped rocking, it had to have been a great relief for all that were aboard that ship. And once again, God didn't give Noah any concept of what was to happen after the flood, before the flood. 
So at the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth the raven that went to and fro and, uh, until the waters were dried up on the earth, verses 6 and 7. Now the raven, that's a carnivore. And for this reason, it being sent out and not returning wouldn't be surprising since it was probably found lots to occupy its time on, as we're told in verse 7. And the vantage point that Noah had, that must have been pretty small. He hadn't constructed a viewing deck on the ark. He had only that little window that he had made to look out to see what the world now looked like. Nor did he know, in fact, if the flooding was over yet or not. He didn't have Genesis chapter 9 to look to. He hadn't been given a word from God either way. All that he knew was that there was safety and obedience to God, so he obeyed. Verse 8, then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. Verse 9, but the dove found no place to set her foot and returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her back into the ark. And he waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So no one knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. Verse 13. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from the face of the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. Verse 14. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Six months after the ark hit ground and stopped moving, six months after the water stopped receding, six months after the ground was visible, and Noah knew finally that it was safe to open the covering of the ark. It was, it's then that we come to verses 15 through 17. For 58 days after that hatch was opened, after they could see that the earth had dried out and plant life had begun once again to prosper and to grow, for 58 days they waited. And then God, verse 15, said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your son and your son's wives with you. Bring out of, the, out of the ark every living thing that is with you, of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Now, there are a number of questions surrounding these verses that we could ask. Why did Noah not leave the ark before now? Why did God wait six months for the command to go? And why did God take so much time in the flood? Again, he created everything in just six days. But the Bible never gives us the answer to these questions. But God waiting six months after the waters receded to tell Noah to leave would give the plant life plenty of time to take root and grow sufficiently for the animals to begin foraging upon them once again. And as to why Noah would wait six months for the command to leave the ark, that's an easy one to answer. Not an easy one to do, but it's an easy one to answer. Noah waited because his master had not yet told him to go. The last command that he had from his master was to enter the ark. 
And until he received a command to leave the ark, he was going to stay. And this is how masters and slaves work. Masters command, slaves obey. And this is where safety is found. And, and this is how the grace of God works. The one who could command all the animals to come to Noah, who could command all the waters to flood, who could wipe out everything that had the breath of life within them, that one, when that one gives you a command, a wise person would obey that one. The righteous do obey. And Noah had obeyed God in all that he commanded him. And he would obey him still. So he stayed. But once that command to leave was given, man, he left. Very gladly and gratefully, I'm sure. And then we are once again given a first in the Bible. Verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So this is not the first account of a human bringing an offering to God. That one, that is told to us in Genesis 4 in the telling of Cain and Abel. And we were never even told there, though, how this came about, why the brothers offered anything to God in the first place, but that they did and that it was accepted by God and even expected by God implies that he had given a command to bring offerings to him previously. But why an altar? And why now? Well, until the flood, the garden, the garden still existed in that place called Eden. The place of first habitation where God used to commune with man as a father to his son. That still existed. But with the flood, that along with all evidence of all things prior are gone. And this is why an altar was now erected. And saints, this act by Noah is important in understanding the flood narrative. Yeah, yes, God had provided protection for Noah and his family. Yes, he had provided provision for them as well. But it didn't come without a cost to them. Because every other person that they had ever known prior to the flood all died in the flood. And everything they knew about life died in that flood. And they lost everything that they had in that flood as well. The question that we should be asking ourselves concerning Noah and his family is, how did they see the flood? I mean, were they just grateful that they were saved and cared nothing about those that were not? Were they angry at God, maybe a bit sore at losing all that they had, their life, their home, their extended family? Maybe even a bit mad and homesick, missing the comforts and ease of their old life. Well, verse 20 is the telling about how Noah and his family viewed the ark, the flood, and the provision of God. You see, the very first thing that Noah did after being given the command to leave the ark, the first thing he did was not to find the best spot for a new house. It wasn't to go and start building a secure dwelling for him and his family. His first concern was not even for his family at all. The first thing that he did was to build an altar for God and then offer a sacrifice of an innocent animal to God. And this is all before the formal institution of blood sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins 
had been instituted. The law hadn't yet been given. And yet here, this man who was chosen by God, the only man alive at that moment who was said to be righteous, the first thing that he does upon leaving the ark is to sacrifice animals to God. Think about it. I mean, he made it. The danger's all over. He could relax. He could go on vacation. And I mean, after a year on an ark with all those animals, he probably deserved a vacation. He was safe from the judgment of God on the earth because of the sin of man. And he was said to be righteous. And yet, and yet, the first thing that he does is not only to offer sacrifices to God, but to build an altar upon which those sacrifices can be made. And he did this all because of the grace of God. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. See, Noah knew the human nature that was within him, just as God did. He was said to be righteous by God, but he knew that he was a sinner in need of a Savior. And the God of all creation had saved him unjustly. And then God, and then God explains the covenant that he promised to Noah over a hundred years previously. And that's exactly what verses 21 and 22 are. They are the grace of God in the assurance that never again would God destroy the world by flood. He gave humanity and all creation the rainbow as a sign of that covenant promise. And the things that we humans take for granted, those things like the fact that spring's going to follow winter, that day is going to follow night, and that the sun will rise in the east and set in the west, all of these things are only the, because of the grace that God has bestowed on us in the covenant that he has made with this creation. And this, this is reason enough for all his creation to obey, and it does. But Noah, Noah obeyed before the covenant was explained. He obeyed before the flood happened. He didn't have to be told of the coming destruction of everything for him to raise his hand or walk an aisle. All he needed was for God to quicken his heart, make it alive to God. And then he knew that he was a sinner in need of a savior and that God was God. And that's why he obeyed, as does all the rest of creation. With the exception of man, man is the cancer within the creation of God. The only created thing that does not obey the command of God to be what it was created to be, to act as it was created to act. And the only reason that you do not worry or even wonder about the sun rising tomorrow is because of the grace of God, who is righteous, who is a just God. The God that we are told of in verse 1 that remembered Noah. The God that had promised a covenant with Noah who made a covenant, and before he enacted the covenant, he remembers his covenant. A covenant that was built on and flowed through that covenant that he had made with all creation and the promise that he gave to it when he made that covenant with the serpent back in Genesis 3, 5, when he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, 
between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And he is a God that remembers his covenants even to the end of the age. That covenant that he is said to have been remembering in Revelation 16, 19, when we read the great city was split into three parts and the city of nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And he remembers the covenant that he made with those that he delights in. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was her husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and say to his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. And this, that is the telling of that final covenant that he has made with all the redeemed from Adam moving forward. And this is the covenant that Jesus spoke of when he said, when he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after eating, saying this cup that is poured out for you is the covenant of my blood. Verses 19 and 20 of Luke 22. And this is the grace of God. Dear ones, I want to stop you. I want to wake you up. So stop. Think. You see, we've all been lulled into thinking badly about God. This is the human condition, so much so that a very large portion of the Bible is directed toward convincing us that we cannot approach God on our own, that our works are nothing more than filthy rags, that the only way that we can stand before this God is because of His grace. Even with those that claim to have been saved by His grace, we have to convince them that they are not good, that they did not choose God, that they were dead in their trespasses and sin, even though the Bible clearly tells them this. But this is not me, you say. I know that I'm a sinner saved by grace. I know, like Noah, this. And I understand this truth. But just as God remembered Noah, Noah remembered God and obeyed him in all that he commanded. And after the command to leave the ark, he built an altar and sacrificed to the God who made him righteous. And in that righteousness, because of that righteousness, he was saved. And this is the command of the righteous, just God, to those that he has made righteous. Remember. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, Exodus 28. Remember his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, 1 Chronicles 16, 15. Do this in remembrance of me. Saints, the fact that you are alive at this moment is only so because God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. A God who makes covenants that enables you to see him as he is. Holy, loving, just, and merciful in his grace. 
Do you understand that just like Noah, you did not deserve the grace of God, that you should be fish food on the bottom of the ocean and then be sent to an eternity of torment? If this is so, this is an evidence of the saving grace of God towards you. But do not take this grace for granted. Remember and heed the warning of the one, that one that you claim to be your Savior. Remember. Remember the most awful and terrifying words that have ever been spoken. Depart from me, I never knew you. And these words that are spoken, they are spoken to those who claim the grace of God in their lives. Those that are active in ministry, active in serving, they are convinced in their own minds that they are in, but they are not. <clears throat> and this was the warning of the Apostle Paul to the members of that church in Corinth. The church that was having issues with what we might call a greasy grace. Folks who were convinced of their salvation and yet continued living in blatant outward sin. And the church who lived in another form of blatant outward sin and not confronting them. To them, Paul tells them, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. 2 Corinthians 13.5. He wrote that to the entire church, not just those that were doing what was apparent outward sinning. You see, there are those within the church that think that disobedience to God is not a sin. Oh, sure, I know that I'm covered by the blood, and I can still live with my girlfriend. I know that I'm covered by the blood, and I can watch porn. Those are outward, easily spotted, blatant sins. But how about, I can still not give as I am commanded. I could still not join a church and make it the most important part of my week. I have freedom in Christ. And these, these are inward, blatant, outward sins. And the warning that Paul gave is the same message that Peter gave in his second epistle when he says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an, an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1, 10 and 11. You see, Peter, like the rest of the apostles, they all lived with a man who had been convinced that he was in. They served alongside of him, worshipped with him, but this man was not of them. He wouldn't submit. He didn't love the Lord as the rest of the disciples did, and his unwillingness to submit proved that he could not submit. Even though his sin was, like the Peter, was just like that of Peter. See, both Peter and Judas, both men denied Christ. One with his words three times and one with a kiss. And one of them was of the devil and the other was prayed for by Christ. But both failed. But one saw the grace of God in his life and submitted and obeyed. But not perfectly though. You see, Peter had to be confronted by Paul over his sin in adding to the grace of God. But the proof that he was in the grace of God is that when he was confronted in his sin, he submitted. 
not to a man, not to Paul. He submitted to the word of God, and his submission to the word was the evidence that he was in the grace of God. And that confrontation by Paul, that was the proof that Paul was in the grace of God. And that his confrontation to Paul or to Peter, that, that was the most loving thing that Paul could do in the life of Peter. Paul knew, like Peter knew, that there is a danger in presuming on the grace of God and that a willingness to not be obedient to the master of their lives, while it's natural in our flesh, in our old flesh, is still required and is the evidence of the new life that is given in Christ. And this is the same thing that we're told over and again concerning that righteous man named Noah. Do you ever wonder why three times we are told that Noah obeyed in all that God commanded? Saints, do you know the grace of God? Do you truly know it? But do you then live like Noah lived? In obedience? In obedience to the one who remembers and keeps his covenant with you? See, the grace, that grace that you claim is yours, was sealed by his body and his blood. And this is how those who are actually covered by the blood of the Lamb, how they live. Not perfectly. We are not talking, I am not talking about sinless perfection, simply because we cannot live perfectly. Perfectly, We're still bound by these bodies of death that entomb our grace-covered, grace-regenerated, grace-saved souls. Saints, live in the righteousness of God that he has given you, that he has made you to be in. All that are of this covenant will desire to live in this manner. God's grace in the life of Noah was manifested in him being called righteous by God, manifested in him being warned of the destruction of all things, and then manifested in the obedience that saved Noah. And God's grace to us is no different. See, there is a much worse destruction coming soon. Jesus is returning soon, and with him, he is bringing the wrath of God on sinners. And this message is the grace of God towards humanity, and in it, And in it, it contains the grace of God towards those that he is making righteous now. And those that he has made righteous, those, they obey and remember and live all by grace alone. Sola gratis. Let's pray.